The sky is blue. The sky is blue. Death is coming. Life has its difficulties. Life has its great times. There are certain things that are just beyond dispute. The sky is blue. Although some would like to argue, it's true, isn't it? Death is certain. It is something that if our Lord doesn't come back, all of us are going to face. Life is going to have its trying moments, and life is going to have its greatest moments. There are some things that are beyond dispute. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. He starts off by saying that there are some things that are without controversy. They are beyond dispute. Now, for those who might have been here last Sunday, if you recall, we studied together verses 14 and 15 and spending a lot of our time in verse number 15. And remember that Paul is writing this letter in particular to a young man, his true son in the faith, as he calls him over in chapter 1 and verse 4. He's writing to Timothy, and he's writing there, uh, verse 2 rather, in verse number 4, he says, Now, I left you in Ephesus that I wanted you to get some things set in order. Now, I want you to charge some there that they teach no other doctrine. And he's going to then establish uh, some facts on that. And we looked at that again, uh, verse number 14. He says, you know, I really want to come to you. I plan to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I am writing these things so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Verses 14 and 15. Paul says, Timothy, I really want to come. In fact, I plan to come. I plan to come to you shortly. But I don't know what's going to happen. I want to come there to Ephesus where you are, but I don't know what's going to take place. And so these things I have written so that you may know what proper conduct is in the house of God, the church of the living God. There is proper behavior. And last Sunday morning, that's exactly what we looked at. Proper behavior in the house of God. Last Sunday evening, we looked at two word pictures from verse number 15. We looked at the, the, the household of God, being a part of the family of God, and we looked at that pedestal, the church being that which supports or upholds truth. It's the, the ground of truth, and it also stands as a pillar, God's people displaying God to those who are in the world. And we need to be those that are displaying God always to those in the world as his people. Timothy? There are some foundational things that we need to get. We need to understand. We need to be able to explain this. And we need to stand four square for what is truth. Now, what is truth? Well, verse 16. Truth that is beyond dispute. Truth that we don't need to argue about. Now, some folks will, just like they'll argue about the color of the sky and other things. But he says, really, if you weigh all the evidence, these things are really beyond dispute. This is the truth for which the church needs to stand. He calls it the mystery of godliness. Now, if you back up in chapter 3 just a little bit to like verse number uh, 9, you will see there in verse number 9 this phrase, the mystery of the faith. And he's talking there about something that is not a secret, as you and I would think of mystery, but he's saying that, that God has revealed exactly what he has done to take care of man's salvation. In Ephesians chapter 3, remember Timothy finds himself in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul there would talk about the mystery of Christ. And he would say, I just want to remind you again, this, this great picture that God has always had in mind. 
and it's kind of like a, a door being shut, and, and just kind of slowly it has crept open. He said, I'm going to give you a, a visual kind of slowly about what is going on in there, what's going on in the mind of God. And so very slowly I'm going to creak that door open so you can just kind of get a glimpse of what's inside. He says God has, a, has this room full, if you will, of exactly what he's going to do to take care of man's salvation. And little by little, I'm going to open the door and let you peek in there and see what the plan is. Well, by the time you get to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that door is wide open. And you can know exactly what God has done in order to provide man's salvation. It's Jesus. And Jesus came to provide man's salvation so that now it's not just the Jews who can be saved, but now the door is wide open and all nations, even the Gentiles, all have a part in salvation. Great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy, beyond dispute, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is what God has done to provide man salvation. We don't need to dispute about what God has done to provide man's salvation. There are truths that are going to be presented here in verse number 16 that Paul says are beyond dispute concerning Jesus and what he has done to provide man's salvation. So when we look at that mystery of godliness, that's what we're dealing with, all right? Tonight we're dealing with man's salvation and what God has done to provide man with salvation. But there is a word that I simply don't want to leave out as we get into this study tonight, and that is the word great. That word is an interesting word. When I pronounce it to you in the Greek, you're going to immediately know what we're talking about. It's used 243 times in the New Testament, and the word in the Greek is megas. Megas. Our word, mega. And that's exactly what we're talking about. He says, great, megas, is the, the, the mystery of godliness. Great is what God has done in providing us with the ability to be saved. The ability to go to heaven. Mega, great, large, loud, and very important. That's what we're talking about, this great mystery uh, that is God has taken care of. And so this evening, what I want to do is look at what makes it so great. What has God done to provide man with salvation? Now, there are six truths that are stated here in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Tonight, we're just going to look at the first three. And I want you to look at these with me. And you're going to be sitting in the pew, perhaps, thinking, wow, this is very foundational. Yes, it is. But I'm telling you, sometimes we can get so bogged down in other things that we lose sight of what should be indisputable, without dispute. When it comes to our salvation, God was manifested in the flesh. Great is the fact that God was manifested in the flesh. We're talking tonight about Jesus. Oh, it's beyond dispute. If you weigh all of the evidence, it shouldn't be any kind of conversation at all. No argument whatsoever. You go to places like John chapter 1, and immediately that's where we want to run, isn't it? Why don't we? Why shouldn't we? In John chapter 1, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of God, full of grace 
and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus came and he put on flesh. But I want to have some fun for a moment. And I want you to notice the connection between that word megos and the flesh that Jesus put on. Go back with me to Luke chapter 1. And notice here at the beginning, Jesus putting on flesh. And notice what makes it so great, or what we find is going on and, and is called great. In Luke chapter 1, an angel is speaking to Mary. Mary has been told that she is going to give birth. And the Bible says in verse number 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. There's Magos. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You're going to have a son, Mary. He's going to be great. Understatement much? He is going to be great. He's going to be Magos. He's going to be loud. He's going to be great. He's going to be big, and he's going to be very, very important going to be a great ruler. He's going to come, and you're going to give birth to him. Now, you go to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 2, and the wise men from the east have come in the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, and they, they go to Herod, and they ask, where is he? He was born king of the Jews, and immediately Herod is all uh, worked up about it, and he feels threatened about it, and he calls the chief priests and the scribes, and he says, where was this supposed to happen? And, and they tell him, well, the, the, old, the scriptures say that he was to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod sends the wise men on their way, and he says, when you find him, will you come back and tell me where he is? But the Bible says this in verse number 9, when they heard the king, that is Herod, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly magos joy. Jesus should bring joy. You and I need to know that Jesus coming in the flesh has everything to do with our salvation. That in the garden, in the beginning, there was full fellowship with God and His greatest creation man. And God is pictured as one who would come and walk in the garden and they were in a great relationship and in full fellowship. And you know that all of that changed in Genesis chapter 3. And man by himself was left helpless. God came in the flesh to save mankind. It's great. Jesus came in the flesh. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Joseph is told that Mary is going to have a son. And the angel says to Joseph, you're going to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is coming, and he's coming in the flesh. He's coming in the flesh just like you and I. So I turn in my New Testament over to Luke chapter 7. And Jesus now is in the flesh. And Jesus is going through his earthly ministry. And Luke records for us in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus and his apostles enter into the city of Nain. And as they enter into that city, there is a a funeral procession that meets them. Jesus sees the funeral procession and he notices that it's the son of a widow that's died. And so this poor woman has lost her husband, and now she has lost her son. And Jesus is moved with compassion, and he raises that boy back to life. Now notice what happens. 
In verse number 15, Jesus tells, uh, verse 14, Jesus says, the young man arise. And verse 15 says, so he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Verse 16 says, then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great, a megas prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. He is God with us. God has visited his people. Now, the final thing I want you to see on this point of Magos in connection to Jesus being in the flesh is over at the end of Luke. In Luke chapter 23, in verse number 46, I'm just giving us evidence tonight that show us what makes salvation so great and what God has done to provide us with this salvation. Paul says, this is foundational truth, and you stand on it. And so here we go in Luke 23 and verse 46. Jesus hanging on a cross after six hours of suffering there. The Bible says he cried out with a loud voice. Megas is our word, loud voice. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now what does that have to do with Jesus coming in the flesh? What happened here? He died. Tell me, what is death? Separation of spirit and body, flesh. Jesus could not have died if he never came in the flesh. If he doesn't come in the flesh, he cannot utter these words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and breathe his last. He came in the flesh to provide us with salvation. God entered into the struggle with sin personally by coming into the world, the person of Jesus Christ, to live among men. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, you, you read those those very uh, important words of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 that remind us of just why Jesus had to come in the flesh. Why did God have to leave heaven above and put on flesh? The Bible tells us in verse number 14, Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. I'm reminding us tonight of very foundational truth. If God never leaves and comes to put on flesh, propitiation isn't made. He had to do it. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the plan that God always had in mind to bring about man's salvation. Christ had to come and put on flesh. That's what this is all about. Philippians chapter 2, one more on this point, and I just don't know how you can make it without going over there, and so I will. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, 
I hope you have these verses somewhat committed to memory. But the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He is God. But made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming, how? In the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. How great we need to see what Jesus did in coming, putting on flesh for man's salvation. The evidence is without dispute. God came to earth and put on flesh. Number two, this is about bringing about our salvation. It's kind of important, isn't it? So God had to leave heaven above, and he came and put on flesh. The next thing that Paul says is that he was justified or vindicated, as Brother Kyle read a moment ago, by the Spirit or in the Spirit. There are people who want to talk about this phrase, and does it mean uh, his his physical spirit, uh, his attitude on life, or how he lived and conducted himself? Are we talking tonight about the Holy Spirit? Uh, tonight, uh, I'm going to tell you, I think it, feels, it sounds like we're looking at the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit vindicating who Jesus was and what his mission was all about and what he accomplished while he was here. Remember uh, being a teenager, maybe having a teenager? And remember having them come home or you come home and your parents say, Hey, wh- where have you been? <laughs> where have you been? And you say, oh, you know, I was over at so-and-so's house, or I was hanging out down at the park, or, you know, I was just driving around, and and they ask you the follow-up question. Who can vouch for that? Is there anybody who can vouch for that? Is there any way to make sure that what you're telling me is right? That's the idea behind this word, vindicate or justified by the Spirit. The idea is the Spirit is going to vouch for who Jesus is. Uh, He's going to confirm for us uh, what Jesus came to do and and what he accomplished while he was here. The Holy Spirit vindicates uh, Jesus and what he did. Now, this is, again, very important for us to understand. The Holy Spirit, we find uh, having a role from the beginning of the life of Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20 that that Joseph was minded to put Mary away because he knew that he had had no relations with her and she was pregnant and and he knew that it wasn't his child and and so uh, secretly he was minded to put her away. It speaks very highly of Joseph and his character, by the way. You know that he wanted to do that secretly, but he understood that that child is not mine. It speaks also to Mary's character. But we see here that 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 child is not mine, and so uh, I'm going to put her away. And the angel comes, and he says, That child is of the Holy Spirit. She is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And and so we see the Spirit involved in Jesus' ministry. When he left heaven to come down here, we see the Holy Spirit involved in this from the very beginning of Jesus' coming. And we're going to see the Spirit play a role all the way through the ministry of Jesus. And he vouches for Jesus and his deity. And he vouches for his humanity. And because all the evidence is presented for us, we can believe in what Jesus did and what he provides us. It was the Holy Spirit who came upon Jesus at his baptism. 
I love these, these words in John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, where Jesus, or John the Baptist, he looks over in verse 28 and he says, hey, that's, that's the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to remove the sin of the world. How do you know that's him, John? He says, well, I didn't know who he was, but I was told, a voice told me, that the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form, you understand that that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Well, who was present at the baptism of Jesus? John was. And what did John see? John saw the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. And he says, "Hmm, that's him. That's the guy. That's God. He's the, the Lamb of God. He's the one who's come to take away the sins of the world. The Holy Spirit vindicates. He vouches for Jesus and what he came to do. We see him continuing through the life of Jesus and all the way through, all the way until the very end. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, here are these first two points coming together before we move on to the third. In Romans chapter 1, Paul begins this wonderful letter by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit played a part in Jesus raising from the dead. The Holy Spirit is there and responsible in part for Jesus coming back to life. And as he was there, he vouches, for the, he vindicates the fact that Jesus was deity, that Jesus left heaven above, that he came in human form, that he came in the flesh, that he died for the sins of the world, and that he was raised again. The evidence is there, and it's beyond dispute. I do want to give you one more, actually, and then I will move on. But I want you to turn to your Bibles and see this one, because it's too good to pass up. In 1 John chapter 5, Here's another connection with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit vindicating, again, what Jesus came to do. I want you to see it here in 1 John chapter 5 in your own copy of God's Word. John records these words beginning in verse 6. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, vindicates, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Listen to me. John says, Jesus came. Jesus came to provide salvation. And he talks here about water, and he talks about blood. Now, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, we see water involved. Water, baptism. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism. And then John speaks of blood and and the Holy Spirit seeing what was happening all the way through the life of Jesus from the beginning, water, all the way to the cross, blood. The Holy Spirit says, I can vouch for Jesus from the beginning all the way to the end. The evidence is there. The Spirit of truth testifies that Jesus is deity, that He has come and He is to provide us with salvation. Paul says, Timothy, 
This is foundational truth. You stand here. God has come to provide us with salvation. He left heaven and He came in the flesh. The Holy Spirit, the one from heaven, unified here as we see in 1 John 5 and verse 7 with the Father and the Son, He bears witness of the fact that Jesus is deity and that He's come to provide us with salvation. Give me some more evidence, Paul. Great is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was seen by angels. Seen by angels. Now tonight, I won't be long in this point, but I want you to see, picture in your mind, what's the scene at the birth of Jesus? What do we see angels doing at the birth of Jesus? And you go back to this megos, you go back to this loud and very important event, and you go back to the book of Luke, and the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, that it is angels that appear to these shepherds out in the field. And when the shepherds see the angels, they are mega afraid, wouldn't you? Mega afraid. And the angels say, Don't be afraid. Today is a day of mega joy. Jesus is here. Salvation that has been promised is going to be made available. This is a happy day, but angels are the ones who announce the birth coming of Jesus. Angels are going to minister to Jesus after he is tempted by Satan. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11. Angels are going to be present, as we've even discussed or sang tonight in, in our song before the Lord's Supper. Angels would come and they would minister to Jesus in the garden the night before he was crucified. And tonight, would you turn to Matthew chapter 28 and be reminded of the role of angels on that most glorious day. In Matthew chapter 28, the Bible says in verse 2, Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly, Matthew says, from the tomb with fear and mega joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And angels were there at his birth. They were there through his ministry. They were there when he was raised back to life and they were there in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended back to the Father having accomplished all that he came to do. Timothy, this is the foundation upon which we stand. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is what God has done in providing our salvation. remember what Paul says next to Timothy? I mean, when you get beyond verse 16 and you get into chapter 4, do you remember the warning that Paul gives Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4? 
We're ta- Paul says, hey, Timothy, I want you to know that in latter times, some are going to depart from the faith. You see, what I've just told you about is foundational truth. That Jesus has come and he has provided salvation. He's made it available for all men. You can look at the evidence. It's all right there. And you, know, you can't miss it. But some are going to miss it. And they're going to take that doctrine of Christ. And they're going to twist it. And they're going to turn it to their own destruction. It's possible you're sitting here tonight and you say, I've heard this. Well, I've heard this my whole life, that Jesus left heaven, that he came in the flesh. I know that the Holy Spirit, he's recorded for us, and, and he shows us all the evidence that we need. He was present throughout the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus didn't do anything without the Holy Spirit involved. We see that in his ministry. I know that. I know that angels didn't understand it. I know that there was a time Peter records for us where they were peering over, uh, looking and seeing how exactly is God going to do this. And yet we find them ministering to Jesus from the beginning all the way to the end, from his time here on earth, all the way until the time he went back to heaven. But is it great in your mind? Have you stopped to consider... Lately, just how great it is. Have you stopped to think about that that as much as people around us are trying to get us to turn away, that as much as they're asking us to question the facts, the facts remain. God has provided us with salvation when we were completely unable to provide it for ourselves. God took care of the issue. Paul says, Timothy, this is foundational truth that you as the church of God must continue to stand on. You must continue to support. In Hebrews 2 and verse 9, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death that he might, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus came to provide us with salvation The facts are indisputable, and we need to stand squarely on these truths. Tonight, as you think about the way that you're living, you think about your salvation, you think about all that God has provided us, you see what Paul has done so marvelously through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is proper conduct. This is the way you behave. This is the relationship that you share. This is the responsibility you have. But all of this has to be motivated by what God has done in Jesus. God came in the flesh. He saw what you needed. And He took care of it. You stand on that. Don't you move. Don't you leave. Don't you go looking for answers that don't exist somewhere else. Don't you depart from the faith. You stand squarely with Jesus, who's provided your salvation. All the evidence backs it up. Tonight, if you've moved, then won't you as a Christian come back? Won't you appreciate again and more fully what Jesus has done in providing your salvation? Won't you understand that you can be as good as you want to be, but you'll never deserve it and you'll never earn it? 
But God knew that, and he took care of you anyway, and he took care of me. Tonight, if that's not motivating you to live righteously, then please, will you change your mind about that? Will you see what you need to do, and if changes need to be made, and if you need to come forward in a public way and make public changes, then please, we stand ready to help you any way that we can, because, you see, we're the household of God, and we simply want to love each other and help each other get home. Jesus provides us that opportunity. Tonight, my friend, if you're not a Christian, he has provided you an opportunity to be saved. Will you take advantage of the salvation that he offers? Will you come tonight in faith, repentance, with a willingness to confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, a willingness to be buried in baptism, having your sins washed in his precious blood? Tonight, will you obtain the salvation that he alone offers by what he did? Will you respond? Come, while together we stand, while we sing.